Father, we're grateful for the privilege to carry each other uh, to Jesus. Thank you for the power of prayer that has been answered over the past 15 years of this church, over the past 15 minutes. Lord, we are grateful for the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of angels that you send when your people pray. So now, Lord, we do pray for one another, those that we personally know that are struggling, those that we don't know. And we ask, Lord, for you to glorify yourself through rescue, redemption, renewal of hope, and restoration of purpose. We love you, our Redeemer, the forgiver of our souls. We've never needed you more. And we've never been more excited to know that you are bringing together all things to a beautiful, perfect purpose for which we long to see, maybe even before the sun sets on this day. Might we be ready for that with sanctified hearts, surrendered lives, sobered minds, courageous, compassionate tongues, ready, willing hands and feet, serving the King, serving His people here and around the world. We pray for your church that is coming together for the great day of the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Years ago, a French philosopher named André Marat said, Why are we here? I get that, just a minute. Let's see. You guys can advance that slide in case I'm not able to do that. Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I am quite convinced that no one else has the slightest idea. Not exactly the kind of guy you bring to your leadership summit for a motivational talk. Many people can relate to him. They can relate to Shakespeare's Macbeth, the Scottish nobleman whose life ended in disgrace, who said, in summary, life is but a walking shadow that struts and frets on the stage for an hour, and then is no more. Life is a tale that signifies nothing. I'm grateful that these statements are not true, because I am grateful that history is going somewhere, as promised in this epic hope word in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed, accomplished in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, when everything was right, to bring, here's the purpose, Unity to all things in heaven and on earth under 
Christ. I don't really know of a more relevant verse in Scripture for the generation to which I preach. When I first started preaching and the, we watched the nation first started rebelling, we said we were in a postmodern generation, which meant that people no longer, uh, we call modernity, would be from the Industrial Revolution to the Second World War, where people said there is an answer outside of ourselves somewhere. It might be in philosophy, it might be in religion, it might be in science, but there's an answer, an objective answer to the purpose of life out there. That was during the modern age. The postmodern age came and said, there is no use to look out there. One must look in oneself for all answers, and that is postmodernism, looking for the answer to purpose in life by your own concoction make you a postmodern. Well, we're past postmodernism, and we're now really in an era called post-metanarrative, which means that we live in a generation that believes there is no story at all being told in the universe. People have their own stories. They say, yeah, I have a story, but my story is not connected to a grand story, a meta-narrative, a large story that goes from beginning to end. I just have my story. There is no big story. So we're in a postmodern, post-meta-narrative story that says there is no purpose. And we come to Ephesians 1, 8 through 10, and Paul says, from the beginning of time, God has been working to bring about verse 10, the unity of of all things in creation and among civilization under the headship of Christ. If you haven't been with us for our first four weeks in um, Ephesians, what he's done in chapter 1 is celebrate all that God has done for the believer. And he started four weeks ago by telling us, verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, and we marvel about that, that God set his affection on us, not based on anything we had done good, and he didn't reject us on all the things that he would look down at the corridor of history and see all the things that we would do bad. So before good or bad, he simply said, I love you before creation starts. Then last week, we looked at verse 7, another thing that Paul is grateful for in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. We celebrated over the Lord's Supper that through Jesus Christ, my sins are forgiven. Again, Shakespeare, through one of his characters, King Richard III, says that our conscience has a thousand tongues. And each tongue tells us that we are guilty. So the problem with our conscience, it was an eyewitness to everything we've ever done, so the conscience is accurate. But every time the conscience says, with its thousand tongues, guilty, Ephesians 1-7, Jesus Christ and His blood say, I have forgiven you of all that guilt. In Him we have the remission, the removal of all guilt when your conscience convicts you, Jesus says, I forgive you. So then we come to the third uh, note of praise 
that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, with all wisdom and understanding, God has made known to us his mysteries. And we're so encouraged by this that God does not just come along beside us and say, okay, I am going to forgive you, I'm going to remove your guilt, but from here on out, you figure out the rest of life. No, he forgives us, then moves in by the Spirit in our hearts and shows us the revelation, the unveiling of what he's doing throughout history. This wonderful ability to know what history is about is given only to the believer. Paul contrasts this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with those who don't believe and therefore don't see. 1 Corinthians 2, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom. Back to that same word used in Ephesians 1, but not the wisdom of the rulers of the age. There's two types of wisdom going on here. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery, saw that earlier, that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age have understood that wisdom. So the rulers of this age have wisdom to start businesses, run businesses, run for political office, run the world. Um, They can see things that relate to everyday life, but they can't see history. It's like the rulers of this world, the people of this world, are looking through a microscope and are very skilled with their wisdom of knowing how to do the thing right before them. And they're great at it. They have wisdom at that. But they have no wisdom because they're without Christ. They have no wisdom to see what is the point of all of history. I used to feel sorry for people who couldn't see the grand scheme of history. That is, I felt like there was something that they had been cheated on. And then I realized... um, As Richard Phillips says, the world is guilty of a culpable ignorance. They don't want to see what is going on. That is, if I can live with this denial of a meta-narrative, if I can say there is no big story, there is no purpose, there is no playwright behind the story, I'm accountable to no one. So they choose to say there is no meta-narrative. Because then it holds them, or doesn't hold them in their minds, accountable. But we are given wisdom. We're like a little boy and his father walking down the middle of a city. Giant new skyscraper is being constructed, but right now it's only at the slightly below ground level, and the construction company has the plywood all around the block, uh, downtown block where they're building to protect the public. And the, the little boy can't see a thing inside, and the father lifts him up and puts him on his shoulders, and from the father's vantage point, the little boy can see everything that's being built. That's what that verse means. God... When we yield our lives to Jesus Christ, gives us the Holy Spirit so that we begin to see history and all the events of history from God's perspective. When Paul says God has made known to us the mystery, he's not really talking about anything like God playing games with people. He's not 
Mystery is not so much something that can't be figured out. Mystery refers to it's not the right time. Mysteries in the New Testament are things that are revealed when the time is right. That's why they're a mystery. They had always been in place, but no one could see them because it wasn't the right time for them to be seen. And that's why Paul says in verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. In other words, in the Old Testament, people saw that God was very moved and satisfied by the shedding of blood. So day after day, they would bring their animals and their goats and their bulls to be sacrificed, and blood would be shed for the forgiveness of their sins. But they didn't really understand, understand how does the shedding of animal blood forgive human sin. They couldn't see that. It was a mystery. Nor could the Jewish people see that anything that they were doing would ever be something that the rest of the world was involved in. The Jewish people could only see themselves. Ever so often there would be glimpses and hints that this work that God was doing was larger than Palestine, larger than Israel, but it wasn't the right time for it to be revealed. And then when it was revealed, as it is stated so well in the Revelation song at the end of the Bible, we see exactly what the Old Testament people could not see. Revelation 5 verse 9, speaking of Jesus Christ, you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. No one in the Old Testament saw this, that God was going to send His Son to bleed for all of those sins in the Old Testament, and His blood was going to not just be poured out for those within the nation of Israel that would cry out to Messiah, but anyone among the nations, any ethnicity, any color, any socioeconomic background would be welcomed by Jesus Christ. Do you understand what privilege it is after 6,000 years of history that we know the mystery? You are living in very special times. Because it's crystal clear what has not been clear to previous generations. We know that God is bringing together all nations and cleansing all through the blood of Christ. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. It pleases God for you to know what He's doing. It pleases you, God for you to see the loveliness of Christ. It pleases God to make known to you, now that the time is right, all that He was doing in all the pages of the Old Testament when they had no idea what God was doing. Look at that phrase, made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ. This is a reminder that everything that God said He would do and knew that He would do in the Old Testament, because it pleased Him, it has been purposed and it will be accomplished now that Christ has come. God's not waiting on anybody. God is not affected. God is not controlled by any force. As R.C. Sproul says, there are no maverick molecules in the world. 
Nothing will stop this from occurring. His good will, His pleasing will, will be accomplished when the time is right. And as I prayed a moment ago, maybe by the end of today, the last person in the last village in the last nation would say yes to Christ. So what exactly is the mystery? Verse 10, to bring unity, to bring together all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. If you came today and said, I don't know what life is about, that is what life is about. This is the goal of history. This bring to unity all things, or some of your Bibles might say bring together all things, comes from a, a compound Greek word, ana would mean again. This one is a long one. This one is a tester for me. Kephal i ao. So it's ana kephal i ao, which means it was used in Greek mathematics when you would take a group of numbers and add them together and create a sum. So God is bringing from all the nations of the world a number of people together to enjoy the beauty and the satisfaction of worshiping Jesus Christ. Now, that's what that, that second word, kephaliao, that word means to bring together but when you put Anna in front of it, it changes the word a little bit. It means to bring together again, which causes our mind to hearken back when everything fell apart. God created perfect world, perfect order. Man rebelled in Genesis chapter 2, which led to the first murder in Genesis chapter 4. Then man wanting to dethrone God in Genesis chapter 11 built a tower attempting to reach into heaven and impeach God. God confused their language in the building of their tower so they would not self-destruct in their, their idolatry. And so at that point, the nations were scattered. The peoples were scattered throughout the world. So everything that was together and orderly now began to be scattered. The universe itself was cursed so that the universe that used to work for man now works against man. And God is bringing together everything. So when you say, what does everything add to? If God is the great mathematician and he's got this, this list of things that he's bringing together, what does it all add up to? Well, if you take... All the history of the world, all the Chinese dynasty, Roman Empire, British Empire, all the discoverers and explorers and America itself, and you combine all information and all technology and all sports and all forms of art and music, and you say, where is it all headed? It is all headed to the gathering together of blood-bought people who worship and 
find satisfaction in enjoying the beauty of Jesus Christ forever. That is the purpose of life. Jesus is the goal of history. And that's why everything we do in a church is important to reflect. That's why we strive for unity in a church. That's why we ask forgiveness of one another in a church. That's why we confess sins to one another in a church. So there will be unity here reflecting the unity that will be there. It's why diversity is so very important in a church because God is building a kingdom that is composed of racial, cultural, educational, and socioeconomic diversity. And he wants that reflected in his church, which will be made more clear in the rest of the book of Ephesians. But from every sphere of life, God is bringing together from a diverse world people to worship Christ. Who is able to do it? Only one man. Only one man can bring the world together. That is the Son of God who earned the right to do Ephesians 1.10 through the shedding of His blood and the rising from the grave. Only one man can bring the world together. Jesus Christ. If you go to Ephesus today, city of Ephesus, you will see a, there's a fountain uh, in the middle of the, um, of, the, uh, of the city. It was built in honor of Trajan, Roman emperor, who ruled from about 98 to 118 A.D. And the city of Ephesus built this beautiful, right in the middle of the fountain, a beautiful, large statue of Trajan the emperor. And uh, when they built it, they built it with his left foot on the ground and his right foot resting on a ball, symbolizing the globe. Trajan was going to subdue the earth. This is all that's left of it now. Just his left foot. Who is able to bring the world together? Boy, are we not hearing promises now? It's political season, and everybody is going to bring us all together. I'm going to reach across party lines. I'm going to work with all the heads of state in the world, and I'm going to bring the world together. And they all die like Trajan, and all their kingdoms fall like Rome, and only one man is going to bring the world together, and it is Jesus Christ who shed his blood for that very purpose. There will be a day when conflict is defeated, all conflict is defeated, all corruption is destroyed, and all nature will bring uninterrupted joy to God's, God's people. God is reversing everything that was done in Genesis chapter 3, the destruction of nature. God is reversing it. God is reversing everything that was done in Genesis chapter 9 with the nations being separated. That's why we love the book of Acts so much. What do we see in the book of Acts? Everything being reversed. 
the nations coming together in Jerusalem and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ all in a common tongue, they could understand exactly opposite of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. We love the book of Acts because we see the power of Jesus Christ through miracles restore broken bodies, even crippled people and even those who have died. And all of it is being reversed in the book of Acts. That's why we love the book of Acts. It is the promise of reversal. The promise of this fulfillment begin in the book of Acts. That's why we love the book. Everything is being reversed. And one day it will happen just as Revelation says, this is when it's all done. We will shout together and sing together. This is our song, Hunter. Learn it. <laughs> Revelation eleven fifteen. the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord. And it's done. That's, what, that's what's happening. That's Ephesians 1, 10, fulfilled. It's going to be the largest and most joyful family reunion in the history of the world. It's the fulfillment also of Isaiah chapter 11. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt around his waist. The wolf will, lie, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The infant will play near the cobra's den. All in this new earth. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled completely with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All of that is Ephesians 1.10. This is the purpose of life for all unity through the power of the worship of Jesus Christ to draw men from every nation together to enjoy the beauty of His glory forever. God has planned for millions of souls, billions, to enjoy His infinite beauty forever. And that's why every day of our life we pray for, give to, and go to those who are without Christ in inner city Spartanburg and in the great mega cities of the world to announce the coming of Christ. Richard Phillips says, Redemption in Christ involves a whole restoration of the fallen creation, a total undoing of all the work of sin, and an advancement of creation into the harmonious glory originally intended by God. And so God gives us the wisdom, Ephesians 1, 9, God gives us the wisdom to understand this. He says He gives us the wisdom to understand it, the wisdom and the understanding. Wisdom would be, I know what the big picture is now, understanding means now I know what to do with my life to fit in with the big picture. That's the difference between wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is, I grasp the big picture, understanding is, I know how to organize my life to accomplish God's big picture. So we pray for, we go to, we give to 
the Lord's work because it is His will, it is His purpose to bring all the nations of the world, people from all the nations of the world, to worship Jesus Christ and to undo all that was done with the rebellion of man. Let me close with this. I have not read Pilgrim's Progress in a long time. And matter of fact, anytime somebody ever shares anything from Pilgrim's Progress, it is, to me, I feel an instant indictment. Like, I should read that again. Charles Spurgeon read it a hundred times in his life. It was the most important book to him other than the Bible. Because of this precious ability by John Bunyan, the writer there in 16th century to help us understand Ephesians 1.10 the journey that we are all on to the celestial city. That's why the book is so good. When you get toward the end of the book you're going to be joined there with the main character whose name is Christian. And by that time by the time he gets to the edge of the celestial city he's joined with a a friend, God is bringing together all people, or people from all nations. He's joined with a traveling partner named Hopeful. So there you have Christian, and you have Hopeful. And they, now that the book is near the end, they had, all, they had passed through all the trials that break our heart. All death, destruction, all sorrow, disappointment, frustration. All the things that are part of living on this cursed earth and this this divided, fractured humanity. So they'd made it through all of that and they had just passed through the waters of death. And now they stand and high on the hill they can see the celestial city. Let me read it. Now upon the bank of the river, on the other side, they... Christian and Hopeful, saw the two shining men again who waited there for them. The city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up the hill with ease because they had these two men to lead them up by the arms. Angels. And they had left their mortal garments Behind them in the river. Oh, hallelujah. The talk they had with the shining ones was about the glory of the place. Who told them that the beauty there was inexpressible. You were going now, said they, to the paradise of God. And when you come there, you will walk and talk, or your walk and talk shall be every day with your king. The men asked, what must we do in that holy place? To whom it was answered, you must there receive the comfort of all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown positively, even the fruit of all your prayers, 
and tears and sufferings for the king along the way. In that place, you must enjoy the perpetual sight and visions of the Holy One, for you shall see him as he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that today, even one more sermon, five more songs toward the gathering together of all peoples to enjoy Jesus Christ. Oh, we cannot wait to see him. We cannot fathom the grace that allows us to be there and to be satisfied and drenched with unending pleasure, unending satisfaction, unending thrill by gazing upon the glory of King Jesus. And Father, we say it now and we'll say it then. I can't believe, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I was chosen. I can't believe I was washed. I can't believe I was forgiven. I can't believe I was carried along the way through all my doubts and my departures. Carried along the way so that I would not miss the purpose for which I was born to see the King in all of His glory, to be gathered with believers from India and China and Japan, from impoverished inner cities to sprawling, successful, urban metroplexes. Lord, people out of hospitals and research centers and universities, People out of households, families, singles, children, babies who never left the hospital. Old, decrepit bodies whose final years were spent on a sick bed. All gathered together, none lost. To see the King, the Creator, the God who paints the leaves, the Christ who forgives our guilt, the Spirit who blows life into our nostrils, the Trinity who is responsible for the movement of every atom in the universe as that atom races, as those planets race, as those stars race, as this earth races to the restoration of its perfection. Jesus, thank you for bleeding for earth's soil. Thank you for bleeding for my heart. I accept you as Savior. In your name I pray, amen.